life. I trust that it was a good week for you. It was a busy week in a lot of ways, and yet God provided some really neat opportunities uh, to reach out, to connect with different people um, through some circumstances that we kind of put ourselves in and then others that we didn't even necessarily see coming. And I'll share maybe a little more about that tonight. Um, but I'm thankful for a good week, thankful for God's strength and his, his guidance. Starting a new series today, and this is always a challenge for me to know exactly where to go. And then when you're starting to develop something like this, it just takes a little more time. And I would covet your prayers as I continue to work through this. I don't have this all formalized and organized for the next several months. Um, but God's given me a direction, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm looking forward to see where he takes it and uh, being sensitive to his will and, uh, and work through that. I trust this series will be an encouragement to you. As we look to grow individually in our walk with God, as we seek to grow corporately as a church, and uh, that's kind of where I'd like to go with this. We've been thinking a lot about the new direction, our direction as a church. We've been thinking about our strengths and weaknesses. We've talked about that. You know, how do we take the assets that God's given us and reach out into our community? How do we look honestly at our, at our weaknesses and see how do we shore some of those things up? We've had good discussions about that. Uh, we've been praying about drawing new folks into our church. We've been praying about reaching out to the lost in our community. Our minds are focused on these directions right now. And what I'd like to do is help us think biblically as we move forward in this regard. I want to challenge us in, in regards to the way that we're going to do this. <clears throat> I think all of us would, would say that we agree. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I think all of us would agree that God has chosen to work in this time period through the agency of the local church. I think we understand that. That's why you're here today. Uh, I trust that's part of why you're here. I think most of us would say that we understand that as a church, God has given us a commission to reach out into our community, to start in our Jerusalem and then to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We would agree with that. I think maybe some of us would agree with me that we struggle putting that into practice. You know, I, God's gifted me, and I'm good at a lot of things that, that I'm blessed to be able to do. But I struggle in this area of sharing my faith. I think as a group, maybe all of us could say, I identify with that. Maybe some of you would agree with me with this perspective, that we will feel convicted about that, and so we'll put efforts in for a time. And then maybe we don't see the results that we expect, or we kind of lose focus, or we get distracted, or we get discouraged, and we, we back off. Maybe some of you, like me, are enjoying the optimism and the excitement that I sense in our church body. But in the back of our minds, there's a little bit of fear of what, what does God expect of me in this? <laughs> What's God going to do here? Or is this just going to be like other times and we'll get this momentum and then we'll just kind of back off and we'll be just like we were before? I can identify with these statements. I, too, can struggle with nagging doubts. I, I struggle at times wondering, God, what is it that you're doing here? What is it that you want to do? In some ways, this has been a hard week in that regard. And maybe there's been a little more opposition as I've been trying to explore some of these ideas and work through it in my own heart. But folks, we serve a big God. And we need to keep our eyes on our God in this situation. We need to be reminded that he is fully capable, not only capable, but willing and desires to see this church grow. He desires to see us fulfill this commission. And the Lord's led me to a passage, I think, this morning that will be, I hope, a template for this series and a template for how we go about the growth that we want to see God do, to help prepare us as his servants to accomplish his will in his way. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. 
My goal this morning is just to kind of quickly work through this passage. Uh, I had one professor say that we're just going to kind of water ski over the top. We're not going to scuba dive down too deep this morning. That's the goal, but you know me, and so we'll do our best and save some of the, the, the deeper levels for other messages down the road. We're going to work through the passage. Then at the end, I want to share with you why God brought me to this passage and how I hope it will help us to shape our perspective in the days and the weeks to come. Let's just go ahead and read down through the first, um, first 10 verses here, first nine verses, and uh, let's, let's learn the passage. It's a very familiar text. In verse 1, Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this rare glimpse into the very throne room of God, into your presence. Thank you that you gave that to Isaiah and you allowed him to record that for us in the word. And Father, I pray that you would guide my thoughts today as we work through this passage. Keep me on track, keep me focused on what needs to be said. I pray, Father, that you would give us a big view of you today. Father, help us to have an accurate view of ourselves. And then, Father, also help us to see the importance of our mission. And I thank you for that, Lord, as we look at this text in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to just take some time by way of introduction to put the passage in context. There's two characters, two individuals that we need to look at here as we come to this passage because it shapes the way that we look at the next several verses. And I don't know that I'd ever put this passage in this direct context before. But if you look in verse 1, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's look at the two characters that are important in the story. First of all, Isaiah. He's the author of the book. Uh, It's important to talk about him just a little bit. If you go back to the beginning of the book, we see he was the son of Amos. We don't know a lot about the man Isaiah. Uh, Scripture does not give us a lot of information. We know that he was a prophet ordained by God to go to the nation of Judah. That was where he was focusing. We realize that he had a long ministry. If you look back into the first chapter there of, of Isaiah, we see that he prophesied during the reigns of four different kings. That's a long time. Um, If you take the last three, Hezekiah at 29 years, and Ahaz at 16 years, and Jotham at 16 years, we know he ministered for at least 60 years, 61, 62, plus whatever time he served during the reign of King Uzziah. So a long ministry. Um, He had a discouraging ministry. I don't think I would put it on the same level as Jeremiah, necessarily. If you know the book of Jeremiah, you understand what I'm talking about. But Isaiah was told at the outset, the people aren't going to listen to your message. (laughs) You're probably going to prophesy to the end of your life with very little success. 
He knew that going in, and yet he still served God and he was still faithful to the task that God had given him. Tradition tells us, and I think, I think this is probably accurate, that he was executed during the reign of Manasseh, which would be the next king after King Hezekiah. Hebrews 11.37 talks about how different people were martyred, and it mentions being sawn asunder. And tradition points to, to Isaiah as this one that was sawn in half with a timber saw during the reign of Manasseh. That's a gruesome, gruesome picture. I take it that Manasseh didn't like his message very much. <laughs> um, he had some opposition to what was going on. So that's Isaiah in a snapshot. We don't know a lot more about him. We, we glean some things as we work through the book. But there's another character that we need to look at, and that is King Uzziah. And if we were to look at his, at his kingdom, I think we could say it this way. He had a glorious reign with a traumatic and a very sorrowful ending. In fact, go ahead and flip back with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. Keep a, a bookmark here in Isaiah. We'll definitely be back there. But the story unfolds of this king in, Isaiah, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I don't think we give Uzziah credit for as great of a king as he was. In fact, I think we could say it this way. No king like Uzziah had reigned since the days of Solomon. One commentator put it this way. Never since the son of David brought the queen of Sheba to her knees had the national pride stood so high or the nation's dream of sovereignty touched so many remote borders. He's bringing glory back to Israel. And Uzziah reigned as king for over 52 years. That's a long time to be on the throne. And he accomplished much. His name, Uzziah, means Jehovah is his strength. He also has a second name that we see in the book of 2 Kings, and that is the name Azariah, which means Jehovah is his helper. And that was true of Uzziah's life for the majority of his reign as king. Uh, we see at the beginning here of chapter 26 that he began to reign when he was 16 years old. Do we have anybody here that's 16 years old? <clears throat> a couple. There. Could you imagine putting them on the throne? Parents, you don't have to answer that one, but... <clears throat> The older we get, the less we look positively on the younger ones that way. Wow, they're so young, right? But when we were 16, we were so mature. That's just usually how that works. As a 16-year-old, he was placed on the throne. Pretty remarkable. He served for 52 years. It says in verses 4 and 5, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. He sought the Lord. And because of that, in verse 5, God made him to prosper. Then in verse 15, it says he was marvelously helped. Doesn't that fit the context of what we looked at in Psalm 1 last week? How God will make your way to prosper when you put him first. We see a real-life example of this here in King Uzziah. He had military victories over the Philistines and over the Arabians and over the Ammonites. He extended the borders of Israel. He's bringing back the glory days. In fact, it says his fame spread far and wide. They were talking about King Uzziah down in Egypt. <laughs> And that's pretty remarkable in a day where they didn't have the news and they could just turn on the TV and see what was going on in the world. His fame had spread worldwide. It says that he built watchtowers and he fortified the walls of the city. It says that he built engines, cunning engines in these watchtowers. I think that's down in verse 15. Um, that kind of makes your mind think, what do these look like? It says they would shoot out arrows and that they would shoot great stones. I'm picturing maybe a trebuchet type of an idea. And he engineered these things, and he placed them in the towers on the walls to protect the city against attack. I think his engineers were a little better than mine. I remember back in the day, we were doing this theme, the, the idea of, of um, 
Days of Nights, I think is what we called it for camp and also for Vacation Bible School. And we got this harebrained idea that we were going to make a trebuchet. Actually, we were going to make two of them. And we were going to set them up on the fields at camp, and the kids were going to launch water balloons at each other. And it was a great idea. So we went online, and we found these plans, and they looked really good on paper. And I had Frank Schritz help me. Now, if you know Frank, I'd have been better off having him design and engineer the plans than finding something online. We put these things all together, we measured and we cut and we built and, and Evan was here that summer and we were so excited. Frank was here and we finally got it all done about four or five o'clock I think that night and we had them out in the parking lot here. They looked impressive. We got a big old water balloon and stuck it in that thing and we pulled that thing back as tight as we could and we released it and it went like six feet and fell splat right in the parking lot. Okay, this didn't work right. So we remodified and did some new engineering. We never did get those things to work. It was, it was a terrible thing. That's not how it worked for Uzziah. He had some men that knew what they were doing, and they made these cunning engines, and they put them there in the towers. They fortified the walls. They were ready for defending their country. It says he built up the army, and he made it a powerful force, and he outfitted them thoroughly. He gave them everything that they needed. He understood this idea of peace through strength, and he definitely modeled that with his army. But he dug wells. He restored the farming industry there. It says, as you read through that passage, it says he loved husbandry. And so digging wells and planting gardens, and, and he was making the country to flourish. This was a fantastic time to be alive in the, nation, in the time of Israel. Militarily, they were strong. Politically, they were reaching out. Economically, they were prospering. Everything was going great for them as a country. And this was the time period that Isaiah grew up in. He grew up in this, the, the second aspect, second wave of the glory days of Israel, I think it's safe to say. But as we look a little further in the text, we see Uzziah's down, downfall. Look down in verse 16, it says, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. When he was strong, he began to rely now upon his own strength instead of relying upon the strength of his God. He was trying to help himself instead of being helped by his God, and his heart was lifted up with pride. And it says in the passage, he transgressed the Lord his God. He went to the temple to burn incense. He should have known that didn't end well for other people in the past, but yet he did that anyway. We don't know what motivated him. We don't know what was going through his mind. We don't get any of that information, but we know that he goes to the temple and there's a priest that we see in verse 17 by the name of Azariah. It's interesting that he has the same name as this king. Uzziah slash Azariah, the priest is named the same thing. He hears about it, and so he comes running. And it says in verse 17, Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and fourscore priests of the Lord with him who were valiant men. Folks, this is quite a standoff. You've got a king who's been used to getting his own way. He's not been told no, and he's going to go in and he's going to do this. And a priest who, who understands something about the holiness of God and is going to protect the honor of God. And he's got 80 priests, valiant men, behind him, and now you've got the king, and there's this standoff. Could that have ended badly? <laughs> in a number of different ways, it could have. Uzziah becomes enraged when confronted by the priest and told not to do it. Not used to being told no. And I don't know exactly how it happens. I don't know if he just steps forward. It says he has a censer in his hand, and God strikes him with leprosy. The white spot standing out unmistakably on his flushed forehead. And the priest notices it right away, and so he's, she's sending him out. And I think Uzziah realizes what's going on at that point, and it says he hastens to leave at the same time, and he leaves the temple. 
And this king who did so much for the nation of Israel dies a leper, estranged from his home, estranged from his family, estranged from society as a whole. Now put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a moment. They've enjoyed the prosperity of this kingdom, the national pride, all of that, and now all of a sudden, this one that you'd put your confidence in is now dashed to the ground. This national pride that you felt, this prosperity, you realize it's the end of an era. And it's not just that Uzziah died, it's that he was struck down by God himself. Wow. Uzziah crossed a line he knew he shouldn't have crossed. And I wonder what Isaiah is thinking at that moment. I think maybe there's a little discouragement, a little disillusionment going on in his mind. That's the context that we see this prophecy given. I hadn't put that together before. Let's look at this vision and, and the results of it in the life of Isaiah as we move on through the passage. We'll see, first of all, is Isaiah's vision. We could say his Christophany. I really believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ that he saw, and we'll talk about that more another time. But letter A, the timing of the vision, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, probably around 740 B.C., but really it's a lot more than a date that's suggested here. It's this whole context that we just talked about. It's interesting to me that this vision, this calling of Isaiah, appears in chapter 6 and not in chapter 1. He's been prophesying for five chapters worth. However long that took, I don't know. But he's been prophesying for some time at this point. Why does this call come now? I think it's because Isaiah is discouraged. I think in the middle of all this, Isaiah is probably wondering, God, where are you in this whole mess? God, why did you allow this to happen? God, we had everything as a country going so good. We have a king that loves you and he's serving you and, and you're blessing. And now all of a sudden he sins and, and he's struck down dead. God, where are you in all this? And God pulls back the curtain to show Isaiah that he is still on the throne. What a marvelous thought. God is still on the throne. And you know, we can struggle with similar perspectives today if we're not careful. I don't think anybody would argue with the fact that our nation is in a mess. It is, it is a mess right now. Our leaders are corrupt, and I could say honestly on both sides of the aisle, we've got a problem in our, in our, in our day. Woke culture is taking its toll. We don't see the effects of it quite as much here as we do in inner city areas, but it's working its way into our valley and into our area. And it's not a pretty picture. And we can get discouraged and disillusioned just like Isaiah did. And we can say, God, where are you in all this mess? And God can pull back the curtain for us just like he did for Isaiah and remind us that he is still on the throne. He's still high and lifted up. What a great reminder for us. So we see the timing of the vision. Secondly, we see the content of the vision. It says there that he saw the Lord back in Isaiah chapter 6. If you haven't got there yet, turn back. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He saw the Lord. And the word that Isaiah chose here is the word Adonai, which we get the idea of Adonai from. It's a name that I think he used intentionally to contrast Uzziah with Jehovah. Because this is a word that can be applied to earthly kings just as well as to the sovereign king. It can be used both ways, and it is in Scripture. Uzziah was an earthly king, and he was a great king, but he failed in the end. The Lord is in heaven, and he's still on the throne, and he will win in the end. And so Isaiah saw the Lord, but he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. God is on the throne. 
You know, sometimes we might think that God is flustered and throwing up his arms in dismay and pacing back and forth in an attempt to somehow find a solution to the problems on earth. Folks, if that's our view of God, we've got a little view of who God is. That's not how God operates. He is on the throne. That shows his authority and his power and his dignity. He alone is king. And nothing that's happening on this earth is going to thwart him and his goals. Not only is he sitting on the throne, he's high and lifted up. He's raised and he's elevated. It's an exalted position. It's not a stretch to say that Isaiah saw the most high God in this vision. And it goes on to say that his train filled the temple. And that's not saying that God's into model trains. You know, it's going around a little zoom like in Christmas. You know, you've got the display. What's it talking about? The train, it's the, it's the hem of his robe. It's like when you see a bride and she's got that big train behind her dress. It's, it's that idea. If you look back in, in Exodus when God prescribed the garments for the priests, um, Aaron's high priestly robe had, had a bit of a train. It was the hem of the garment down there, and it was beautiful. It was gilded with gold, and it had pomegranates and bells of silver. Remember that? To beautify it and so that they could hear him as he moved around. It's the same word used there. But here it's a picture of the train of God's robe. And it extends through the entire area there. And the Bible says it fills the royal palace. It's a picture of God's indescribable majesty and his glory on display there for Isaiah to see. But the vision goes on. He doesn't just see the Lord. It says also he sees seraphim. Let's look in verse 2. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. He sees these seraphim, their location, they're above. Some manuscripts translate the idea of roundabout, and I think all of those ideas apply. They're on high. They're there in God's throne room. They're surrounding him. They're all the way around, and they're probably even above to some degree. These are holy ministers standing on high in the presence of their king. We might say they're guardians of God's holiness. Their description, we don't know a lot about them. They're some type of angelic being. We don't see them named any other place in scripture except for this one passage. They're very similar to the the beings described in Ezekiel and Revelation, and yet there are significant differences, which make me think that they're, they're a unique creature that God has created. The root word here means to burn. It's the idea of flaming, of fiery. Um, It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament when God is describing the fiery serpents in the book of Numbers. Uh, It's the same word that's used there. In fact, it's seraph instead of seraphim. Um, And so the idea there of of being fiery, that's that's the focal point of this word. Whatever these creatures are, uh, they're flaming. They're fiery. It goes on to describe the fact that they have wings, six wings. They have hands. They have feet, they have a face, they have a voice, and a voice that's so powerful, it's powerful enough to shake the building. These are impressive creatures. So beyond their description, we also see their humility. They have six wings. What are they doing with four of them? Covering their face and covering their feet. A reminder that they are in the presence of God himself as well. And as majestic and powerful as they are, they still display a reverent humility in the presence of their God. Covering their face. Why? I'm wondering, as as incredible as they are, they still can't look at God either. Covering their face. Covering their feet. The humble portions of their body. But we see next their worship. 
their worship. It says they had two wings to fly. Worship expressed through obedience. Why were they flying? Why were they needing to fly? To move at whatever bidding God gave them to do. Whatever God told them, they were quick to obey, and they expressed worship through obedience. That's a great reminder to us. But they also expressed worship through their praise. They lifted their voices in antiphonal praise. Do you know what I mean when I say that word? Antiphonal is the idea of one person speaks, and then somebody answers from over here, and then somebody answers from over here, and then somebody answers from over here. That's the picture that's taking place here in the throne room of God. One angel cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Another one answers over here, the whole earth is full of his glory. Another one over here, holy, holy, holy. And it's just echoing round and round and round the chamber of God. They're lifting their voices in worship to him. Thrice holy. And yes, there is a glimpse of the Trinity in that. I don't think that's the whole intent for the three times he mentions holiness. I think it's the Hebrew way of emphasizing and showing the importance of and how holy God is. He is thrice holy. The word he uses here for God is Jehovah Saba, the Lord of hosts. And if you, if you hear military overtones to that word, you're correct. God is the king of the heavenly armies and of earthly armies as well. He is the supreme ruler. And they go on to say the whole earth is full of his glory. Connection between God's holiness and his gloriousness. There's a lot we could, we could go on with that. He saw the Lord. He saw the seraphim. Number three, he experienced the glory of God. As these creatures were praising God vocally and, and loudly, it says that the posts of the door moved. The posts of the door were set on these big threshold stones, these big foundation stones. And the idea is that to the very threshold, they were shaking. And so the doors were shaking. The voice of these, of these seraphim caused the threshold of the building to tremble. And it goes on to say that the house was filled with smoke. And if that brings to mind Mount Sinai with God coming down with fire and smoke, uh, with Moses there on top of the mount, that's an accurate perspective of what we're seeing here. What a vision that God gives to Isaiah here in this moment of need and discouragement that he's facing. But that leads us, number two, to Isaiah's confession. Let's look with me in verse 5. Here's Isaiah speaking. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Folks, Isaiah has just seen... A representation of God. He's been in the presence of God, and how does he respond? He's overwhelmed by his sin and a sense of his own unworthiness. He says, woe is me. Alas, woe unto me. It's a, it's a passionate expression of grief and dismay. And he goes on to say, I am undone. I'm cut off. I'm struck down. I'm pierced through. I'm destroyed. I'm ruined. I'm about to perish. I've just seen the very presence of God, and now my life is over. Woe is me, is what he says. And then he moves on to personal confession. I am a man of unclean lips. And I don't think this is so much just an admission that he said something improper at one point in his life. We talked last week about the connection between our mouth and our lips and our heart. And I think the indication here is I'm impure all the way to my heart. I am impure and I am polluted. I'm a sinful man now standing in the presence of a thrice holy God. And he was overwhelmed by a deep consciousness of personal guilt. But he goes on to a corporate confession. Not only am I a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. 
That was just very obviously demonstrated with King Uzziah. My king and my nation stand equally guilty before God. I'm guilty personally, and I'm also guilty corporately. He assumes the guilt of his nation. He doesn't make excuses. We see that almost every time somebody stands in the presence of God. And he goes on to say, my eyes have seen the king. And I don't think it's an indication that he saw God's face. I think he saw God's presence. As you read through this passage, we see description of the throne and of the throne room and of the angels. There's no description for God that's given. It's interesting. He saw God's presence, the presence of the Lord of hosts. And we realize from the Old Testament, no man can see God and live. And so he says, woe is me, for I am undone. He saw God, and that caused him to see himself. But number three, we see next Isaiah's consecration. Look down in verse six. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. God's purpose in bringing Isaiah to the throne room of God was not to destroy him. It was to consecrate him. Sometimes we get a picture of God that's not accurate, that God is all judgment and wants to destroy. God is holy. We need to understand that, and he will judge sin. But when he brings us into his presence for this purpose, it's to consecrate, not to destroy. He wanted to prepare Isaiah for a mission of service. I think we do well to remember that thought. We'll come back to it another time. We see in this consecration the cleansing of his lips, and consequently, I think, the cleansing of his heart. The seraphim took that coal or that glowing stone from off the altar and he, he brought it with tongs and he touched it to Isaiah's lips. Just a light momentary touch is the picture that's given here. He applied the coal of cleansing to the lips of impurity. We see next a statement that there's a removal of his guilt. Your iniquity is taken away. Wow, what a blessing. It's removed. It's turned aside. It's come to an end. That which caused your distress in my presence has been taken away. You can now be in my presence without these feelings of guilt and shame and horror. The punishment that you feared has been turned aside. And then we see third, the atoning of his sin. He says, your sin is purged. It's been removed. And there is a deeper idea of atonement in that word. We don't have time to explore that this morning, but it's a thought that's interesting to pursue. And that leads us, number four, to Isaiah's calling. Look with me in verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. Notice the timing of his calling. What's taken place in the throne room before Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. Well, he's seen God in his glory. He's seen his own personal inadequacy. He's confessed his sin. He's had his sin cleansed. And it's at that point that he hears the voice of the Lord. Is there a pattern there? Folks, I think there is. And I think we'll look at that as, as time goes on. Notice the questions. Who's speaking to who in this context? Did you catch that, that change in voice in the middle of this question? Notice what, what God says. I heard the voice of the Lord. That's who is talking. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
there's an indication of all three aspects of the Trinity involved in this situation here. And we'll, we'll go back to the book of John and see that, and we'll go back to the book of Acts um, from quotations taken from this passage to see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all are involved in this context here. God speaking to himself, to the other members of the Trinity. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah is so overwhelmed with what he's seen and, and the cleansing that he's experienced, he just naturally responds, here am I. God, send me. God, I want to go. We see number five, Isaiah's commission. And I'm not going to delve into the rest of this passage. We will take some time to look at this later. And honestly, it's kind of a hard passage. As far as what God is telling him his mission is going to be, it's going to be a, a lifelong ministry, a difficult ministry, uh, but also a hopeful ministry we'll see there at the end. But I want to take a few minutes now and bring this to, to the point. How does this passage serve for as a template for us in the days and the weeks and the months ahead? Well, I think God is showing us his pattern, how he prepares us to serve him. <clears throat> I see three looks in this passage. There's an upward look, and that happens as Isaiah comes into the throne room of God, and he looks up, and he sees God, and he gets an accurate view of who God is. And that prompts, by necessity, the second look, which is an inward look. He's not now looking up, he's looking in, and he's getting an accurate view of himself as he stands before this holy God. And it's once those two looks have taken place that God now gives him an outward look. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. An upward look, an inward look, and then an outward look. Folks, I think sometimes maybe we get the cart before the horse a little bit in these areas. We desire to see God at work. We want to see that. We're hungry to see a revival in our area. And sometimes I think we reach out and we do it in our own strength. And because we're doing it in our own strength, our efforts don't have much lasting value. Because we're not doing it through the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to explore this pattern in the, in the messages ahead. I want us to see if maybe this, this will help us. I want us to get a big view of God. I want us to see God in all of his glory. I want us to see God in his holiness. I want us to remember that there is nothing too hard for God. But in order for that to take place, we've got to have a big view of him, an accurate view of who he is. And secondly, I want us to get an accurate view of ourselves, individually and corporately, to see ourselves as God sees us. And I'm still, still praying about where to go with this. I think there's going to be some introspection that takes place with this one. But we've got to look in and we've got to work on, on ourselves before we can help somebody else. If I'm in the water struggling to tread water and drowning the same time someone next to me is treading water, I don't have a lot of effort to save them. I've got to be in the boat. <laughs> Then I can reach out with a life jacket and help pull them in. And so there's going to be some individual things that we look at here, but I think also corporately as a church. And that's part of what we're doing in these sessions on Sunday night is we're looking to the future, an accurate view of ourselves. And then thirdly, I want us to get a passionate view of our mission, to see what it is that God has called us to do, to see the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ, to truly have compassion for the lost around us, a burning desire to reach out to the unsaved in our community. And folks, this is not something that we can manufacture ourselves. Well, we can kind of build up and get hype and get excitement and enthusiasm, and, and that will last for a time. But this has to be something that God does. And I think this is the way he does it. 
by showing us himself and then showing us ourselves and then commissioning us and sending us out to serve him. Oh, by God's grace, may he do for us like he did for Isaiah. And may we respond the same way Isaiah did as well. Lord, here am I. Send me. Father, I thank you for this passage of scripture. God, there's so much truth here. There's so much that you've been stirring my heart with over the course of this last week. And God, honestly, I don't know where you're taking us with this. I'm convinced this is where the direction that we need to go. And Father, I'm excited. I'm a little bit nervous to know exactly where this is going to go. But I'm thankful that we were reminded today that you are still on the throne. I'm thankful that you are high and lifted up, that you are the sovereign king. And Father, as you showed that to Isaiah, I pray that you'd show that to us as well. And Father, as Isaiah saw that, he was convicted and convinced of his, of his sinfulness. And Father, I pray that you'd show that as well to us. But Father, it's not just areas of sin. It's areas that we need to improve as a church and grow and, and learn to love each other better and find this balance between reaching out to our community and, and still loving each other and caring for each other within the body. Father, I pray that as we put those two things in perspective, you will give us a renewed understanding of our mission. And that we would indeed go forth with your power and your strength. And Father, as we do that, we'll praise you for the results that you'll bring. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.